The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed in the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to The Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. And you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. This morning, we're going to be talking about the Zika virus and contraception, family planning. Uh, with the outbreak of the Zika virus, many countries are recommending avoiding pregnancy through 2018 due to the high potential risk of babies being born with microcephaly. DK International, a Washington-based organization and one of the largest private providers of family planning and reproductive health in the developing world, has donated 15,000 IUDs and condoms to Mexico. Thousands of DK employee, DKT employees are working in the trenches to inform, educate, and provide contraceptives to those living in the most remote regions of the world to help prevent the Zika virus, unwanted pregnancies, maternal deaths, and unsafe abortions. Use of social media this past month has allowed DKT to teach more than 850,000 people in countries like Mexico, Venezuela, Ecuador, and Guatemala, providing accurate and timely information on how to identify a possible Zika infection, what actions to take, and how to prevent and postpone pregnancy. Here to talk about DKT International and what they're doing is DK International President and CEO Chris Purdy. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Chris. Lovely to be here. Thank you. Yeah, uh, it's, it's great to have you here. We're talking about a pretty intense topic. Obviously, uh, you have been with DK International, as I understand it, for the past twenty years. So you've had a lot of experience in this area. Uh, private uh, family planning, reproductive health in uh, developing countries. Talk to us exactly about your experience and what DKT International is doing now in terms of the Zika virus. Thank you. Um, well, I've been working with, we're a nonprofit organization, and I've been working with DKT for 20 years. Um, most of that was actually overseas in places like Ethiopia and Indonesia. And what we, what we fund, fundamentally do in a nutshell is really two things. The first is to make sure that a wide range of family planning products, including condoms, are available at the places where women and men uh, shop, where they need them most. So supermarkets and pharmacies, clinics, um, um, mostly through the private sector. And we make sure that they are very high quality. We make sure that they are affordable so that the price, the price point is low. Uh, we make sure that they are accessible. And then the second thing that we do is really educate consumers about the benefits of using those products and whether it's preventing uh, a disease, an STI, a social sexually transmitted infection or HIV or Zika, um, or whether it is, uh, you know, planning a pregnancy and spacing children. Um, we, we, we sort of arm women and men with the tools, with the information they need to make the choices that they want um, uh, for, for them and for their families. So that's, that's in a nutshell what we do. Okay, Chris, who, 
disseminates that information? As I understand it, you have social workers doing it. Uh, who else disseminates the information? How do you get people to listen? And I know some of the, and I went on one of your websites, and it said that, you know, people, even in the United States, balk at using contraceptives. They don't want to use condoms because they're uncomfortable. They don't feel good. They don't smell good. They're awkward. Right. They're, uh, nobody wants to use them. So that's a difficult problem even here in the United States. How do you overcome it in countries like you're talking about in these developing countries? Well, it is a challenge. Uh, there's no doubt about it. Um, and it's a multi-pronged approach. So we, we do have social workers and outreach workers going face-to-face and, and, and working with community members, but we also employ mass media. So the same way that um, someone might tr- try and sell you a soft drink, we're trying to sell you the idea of using these, these products. The same way that someone's trying to get you to, you know, to buy a cold beer or, or, or buy a fast car, we're trying to get uh, people to uh, try and uptake these products that have these social benefits. And that's why what we do is called social marketing as opposed to commercial marketing. We use the tools and the infrastructure and the incentives of the commercial, of the commercial sector, of the private sector, but sort of the end result is a social one. Give us an example or give me an example of social marketing, how you would do that. I mean, is it different in different countries because there are different cultural attitudes towards using contraceptives, for instance, or IUDs or any kind of family planning uh, prevention. So what would you do? Give us an example. Sure. People, you know, I, I, so I've lived, in, I've lived in places like Indonesia, which is the largest, uh, largest Muslim country in the world or the, or the country which has, has the most Muslims. And people always say, oh, what's it like, you know, marketing condoms in a place like, uh, like Indonesia? And I say, you know, actually, it's a, it's a lot easier than you think. And probably it's a lot easier than doing it here in the United States. Um, I mean, when's the last time that you saw a condom ad on television in the United States? We, we tend to be, the, the, the challenges that we have talking about sexual health and family planning in the U.S. are similar to the ones that you would have in, in other places where, um, where, you, where cultures are a mix of both conservative values and maybe more liberal ones. And so you have to walk that line. But the kind of things that we would do, um, for example, would be to run a TV commercial um, that would talk about how, you know, about the benefits of using uh, a condom or, say, an IUD, um, but doing it in a positive way, so not sort of the traditional, you know, a doctor in a white, in a white shirt, you know, sort of talking, talking at you, but sort of engaging the same way that Coca-Cola is selling you something to quench your thirst um, using lifestyle. We would do that with, with IUDs. So women, for example, um, in a salon, talking with their friends about the size of an IUD and how it doesn't really, you know, it lasts for 10 years and it provides these benefits. And by the way, it doesn't, it doesn't adversely affect your sex life with your husband um, and sort of turning it into a very, a very uh, uh, positive conversation. Uh, and then linking that advertisement with the service, which is available in a clinic um, or at a pharmacy. So how do you know how successful you are, let's say, given in that situation? You're advertising to women in a hair salon or a place where women gather and doing it sort of a casual way, I guess, as you say. It's not medicalized. It just has to do with your activities of daily living and information presented in that way. How do you know how effective you've been? I mean, do you gauge that? Do you, uh, in terms of numbers, in terms of preventing pregnancies or uh, sexual STDs or 
what do you do? Right. How do you do it? Yeah. Um, so one of one of the beauties of this is, as I mentioned, we, is we we sell these products. So um, if we have run an effective campaign that shifts behavior, that educates women or men and gets them to say, hey, you know, I think I am going to go and ask my doctor about that IUD, or I am going to go ask them about that Fiesta condom and start using a Fiesta condom, which is one of our popular brands. Um, it's your a sales name, go Fiesta. up. <laughs> yeah, it's a great name. Um, so your sales go up, and so you almost immediately can see the impact of whether it's an effective campaign or not. And it also gives you, you know, it gives you feedback, so you can you can tinker and tailor uh, the kind of messaging that you have. And if you see something that works, well, then you double down and you uh, and you run with it even more. Um, it's 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 worth pointing out, of course, that that the the media world has changed significantly even including overseas and that with young people um you know they're increasingly moving to mobile they're increasingly moving to digital uh, about 70% of the world now has access to a mobile phone um that's more than 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 uh you know internet through a computer and it's certainly more than TV and, and, and other media. So um, we, we need to be mindful, of course, if we want to reach young people who, who um, are, you know, there's always every year there's a new generation or a new group of young people who are reaching a sexual debut, and you need to give them the same information that you and I received when we were young people um, because otherwise they won't get it. So you're giving them the same information, but, but you give it in a different way, I assume. I mean, in different contexts. I mean, you, is it, I mean, you have different marketing strategies for young people as you do for, say, older married people. And I guess this brings me to my next question. I don't know if that's true or not, but are you targeting? I, I know that women, at least in the United States, or the statistics I've seen, it's women who seem to be responsible or are the ones who are responsible for contraception. They're the ones who carry the condoms around in their pocketbooks, and men don't seem to take the same kind of responsibility. That's a big generalization. Is that true in the other countries as well? Well, I think it depends. I, I would say it really depends, um, and, and it depends where someone is in their in their sort of sexual reproductive health life. Um, you know, when when people are young, um, um, it tends to be men who buy condoms, not not women overseas. I would say uh, mostly because there's a, a lot of stigma with young women going to a pharmacy and buying a condom. Um, however, when they're once they're married and they're perhaps purchasing an oral contraceptive or going for an IUD, um, there's there's there can be less stigma. There are some other kinds of problems that they, that that they face. Um, but but obviously the way that you talk to a an 18 year old um, young man is very different from the way that you would talk to a 29 year old married woman. Um, we also you know, one of the great ironies of family planning around the world, including in the United States, has been this desire to medicalize and sanitize it um, and to strip it away from sexuality. And one of the things that, that, we, that we do is try to reinsert sexuality into family planning. Um, you know, they use sex to sell everything else in the world, but they don't use it to sell <laughs> family planning. And it seems to me that that's a, a kind of a, a wasted opportunity um, because really the only reason that anybody would ever want to use family planning in the first place is to enjoy the pleasure of having sex without without the consequences of getting pregnant. Yeah, that's um, true, Chris, because we're always, I mean, I, when you see, when we talk about family planning or we talk about uh, contraceptions, we're always talking about 
HIV prevention, which obviously is important, and STDs. And you're right, and there's the doctor in the white coat, and it sounds gruesome, actually. So you're, I, I, it's a totally different marketing strategy uh, that you use, I can see. What about rural versus cities? I mean, you're talking about in some of these countries where you mentioned Indonesia and going into the local market or the local store or the local beauty salon or providing information. But what about rural communities? How do you tackle it in those, yeah, in those communities? Well, it, it, it obviously presents an additional challenge because uh, commercial outlets are not as widely available in, in, in rural areas. But what does happen and, and, and strategy we, we've employed is typically if, if, if we're dealing with rural communities, farmers, uh, agri, agri, agricultural you know, workers, they, come, they will congregate on, let's say, every you know, second Tuesday, they will, they will walk two, four, ten miles to a nearby market, and that in that market is usually in a town of some kind, and so that's a point at which you can um, you can reach them. And so we, you know, for example, in Ethiopia, we have gone into these, we've mapped out, you know, thousands of these market towns, and we have a, you know, a bus that basically goes on that second Tuesday and arrives there and sets up a, a dog and pony show, as it were, um, with information. And there's a little bit of what we call edutainment, you know, mixing up the education with, with something fun. Um, and then off to the side, there might be a tent with a midwife who can provide information, maybe provide prescriptions to a nearby pharmacy, maybe a voucher or a coupon to visit a nearby clinic to get an IUD. And so that's how you can do some of that kind of work to reach uh, populations that are a little bit more um, difficult and vulnerable. Are people reluctant or embarrassed to go up to like your dog and pony show? You know, they don't want, they want the information, but maybe they're afraid that somebody will see them or their neighbors and they, you know, they, because there's no, there's no privacy. Is, is that an issue? Well, it is an issue, but it's the same issue they would have if they were visiting a government clinic. You know, you walk into a government clinic in DR Congo, and all your neighbors are there. They're all they all know what the problem is. So, so the um, although anonymity and privacy are obviously concerns, there's a slightly different dynamic in places like that than than, than we face here in the United States. Um, but again, if you if you if you if you sort of turn that idea on its head and say if you walked into a into a market and there was a a band playing selling um i don't know you know glasses um and there was and people were dressed up and people were singing songs and talking about these great glasses everybody would come and everybody would come and you know get excited about it um, there's not quite this there's not you know a lot of times overseas there's not quite the stigma associated with family planning that we're associate that we assume here I'll give you a, a funny example so I used to live in Indonesia and my wife my wife is actually Indonesian and it is very common when a group of women get together chatting one of the first questions they'll ask each other is, so you know, so what what family planning are you using what do you use um, and that's a very common question. And in, in some places in Indonesia, in front of the house, they would have the number. They would have the number of the house, the number of residents, and they would have the type of family planning that the that the mother was using in that house it would be posted on the wall. So. <laughs> Can you imagine doing that in Albany? <laughs> no, I can't imagine doing it in Albany. I can imagine talking to my girlfriends about what kinds of contraceptives we use or don't use. 
that we do do. I don't think posting it on the front porch would be something we would do necessarily. That's very, uh, that's, uh, I hadn't ever heard of that before. Very interesting. Uh, what, okay, so what about, here's another question about religion, because you mentioned Indonesia, which is where you've been, um, and it's a Muslim country, and, but you're also in South America, you, Venezuela, Ecuador, Guatemala, and that, those are Catholic countries. Any differences in terms of the way they view contraception or how you have to market to them? Well, yes. Um, I mean, again, there are, there are, you know, in any religion, you can't make a sweeping statement about any religion because there are conservative and liberal elements within all religions, and um, and, and the same is true, of course, in Catholicism, including in Catholicism in Latin America. There's parts of Latin America that are extremely liberal. Parts of certainly Brazil, where we have a very large program, and Mexico, there are parts that are very liberal, and there are parts that are very conservative. Um, uh, family planning use rates in Latin America are actually pretty are, are pretty high compared to many parts of other parts of the developing world. So most most women who live in Latin America have sort of ignored that part of the of the doctrine of Catholicism, and they say, listen, I, I've got to make a personal choice for me. I know that, that the official doctrine says X, but I need to do Y, and, and they make those choices for themselves. Um, I, I, you know, I think this, this issue that you're talking about, the Zika, the Zika virus, is particularly relevant. There was just a story that came out, um, there was a report that came out yesterday from WHO uh, that basically um, is prognosticating that there are going to be even more than 2,500 uh, babies born with uh, microcephaly in Brazil. And, you know, Zika now is expanding to almost all um, countries and states in the Americas, in, I think it, with the exception of maybe Canada and Chile. Uh, we've had our first case in the United States already. Um, so it, it's a concern, and I, I don't think, you know, I, when, I, when I think about those kinds of issues, Religion tends not to be a big factor for me. I think what's more important is culture. Um, you know, you can have very conservative Islam and you can have fairly liberal Islam. So it isn't so much the religious tenets as much as it is the way that those get interpreted in a particular society. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we're talking about culture much more than we are talking about religion is what you're saying. Okay. Okay. Well, let's talk about how, what are you going to, the Zika, it's really scary, the Zika virus. And I think there's a lot of misinformation out there in terms of what it is and how it's uh, spread. Uh, can, can you talk to us about that? And, 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 you know, because it seems to be spreading. I mean, it, it's going to, it's going to get worse before it gets better. It, it, it seems to me, I don't know, but it doesn't, um, we don't seem to be doing anything to necessarily stop it. Well, um, yeah. it, it, it certainly is a concern. I mean, this is a, this is something that's been around for a while, but it's, 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 it's gotten to a point where it's taken on a greater, um, you know, a, a greater, greater lime, limelight or spotlight, if you will, in the last, in the last few months. Uh, and I'm not a doctor, by the way, so, um, um, I'm not, I'm no authority on how it's spread, but it, you know, it's spread by, it's spread by a, by a mosquito. That mosquito is a tough mosquito. And, um, for a couple of reasons, the typical kinds of, uh, preventive measures to um, don't really work with this mosquito because it comes out during the day. It's not a nighttime mosquito, uh, so bed nets don't you know don't work. Um, the you know the long long sleeves only at sundown don't work. This is a daytime mosquito. It likes 
urban areas. It likes it likes to be where people are. It can survive on a very little amount of water. Um, so if you have rainwater collected in an old tire in your front yard um, in Brazil, you know, perfect perfect breeding ground for for uh, you know, for, for for this mosquito. So um, and and we're also seeing now, of course, that it is being transmitted through uh, sexual contact. So that's that makes it a you know. Um, and most most people have sex, so people start to get a little worried about it. And hence, hence you have um, some countries like El Salvador that have actually come out and told their population not to have sex for two years. Well, that's not going to work too well. No, um, that's not a solution. <laughs> that's not a solution, you know. <laughs> um, and so the challenge, you know, so the challenge becomes, you know, in addition to uh, the prevention from the mosquito itself. Um, and they're doing fumigating. They are, they are, you know, they're trying to do other kinds of measures, and they're educating people not to have a lot of water um, uh, sitting, sit, sitting around in front of the, you know, in front of the domestic areas. But obviously, um, using prevention in, in, in you know, se- during sex, family planning, and condoms. Um, is it takes on a sort of an increased the relevance right now, particularly in places where you do have higher incidence of of of, of the virus. Yeah. Well, in these cities in South America, and many, and I've I've been to a few. I mean, are really breeding grounds for these mosquitoes, as you describe it. I mean, a lot of the barrios where you're talking about, they breed during the daytime and little. It doesn't take much. What they what they can breed in just a little bit of water, right? That just right. gathers yeah. and yeah. Um, we have less of that in the United States, but of course, you know our cities also have areas where they, there would be breeding grounds. So, what, what is your? I mean, I know your. What's your prediction for what's going to happen here in North America? Say, are, like, well, it's already in Puerto Rico. Aren't there many reported cases of the Zika virus? There are. I mean, there's also a case. There was a case recently in Florida. Um, um, I, I know. I know of. Of a of, of of a woman who has even come to D.C. to get to try and get treatment, so I know you know this is it's definitely here. It, you know, in the big scheme of things, um, you know we don't want to panic about 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 this mosquito. I think there are some um, there are some very uh, clear things that can be steps that can be taken um, to address it. You know, obviously the issues about about uh, you know. Not having water, you know, that's not an issue in Albany. But, um, you know, I, I think education about um, uh, the use of family planning and condoms for people who may have traveled to those areas would be a reasonable, uh, a reasonable first step. And I, I think the authorities are going to have this, have this under control um, in the coming, you know, in the coming six months. I think WHO is taking it very seriously. I think the government's uh, in places like Brazil, taking this very seriously, so I think it's going to be under control. But obviously, certain steps need to need to be taken. What happens if you are uh, bitten by the mosquito and you are pregnant? Does, is it an automatic that your baby or your the fetus will be affected by the Zika virus? Um, or- no, I don't. I don't believe it is. I, I think what happens is 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 you. 
you know, and again, I'm not a, I'm not a doctor, but I believe that you you're bitten, and there are certain symptoms that that uh, that happen right away, and it is maybe only six months later that you'll find out about whether or not your baby has been infected. Um, so there's there's a, there's a, there's a disease called Guillain-Barre, um, which is a syn- which is one of the syndromes. That's the actual first the first uh, syndrome that you'll get if if you're if you're bitten by you know by a mosquito that has that. And then it's only four to six months later that you can confirm whether or not your baby might have been infected. And that's that's kind of the scary part, I guess, for women who who've been bitten. Um, and who have that waiting game, and they're not sure what to do, whether their children's going to be born with it, with the disease or not. And so that obviously raises the issue of of women looking for terminations of their pregnancy, um, which is all, which, as we know, is, is you know is happening because they they don't want to they don't want to risk it, and uh, that's that's a whole other kettle of fish that needs to get you know in places like Brazil and many places in Latin America. Uh, abortion is not legal like it is in the U.S., and, it, and it's certainly not safe. Let's, we only have a few minutes left, so let's talk about specifically um, DK. Inter, D, I keep saying DK. DKT. D, DKT. Yeah. I've got a <laughs> DKT International. Um, anyone uh, listening to the show today, if they are interested in getting involved in any way uh, with with you, with your organization, what can they do? What websites can they go to? What kind of information? Where can we get the information? Um, can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, thanks. Um, sure. We, you know, we're, we're as I said, we're a, we're a, we're a nonprofit organization. Uh, we're based in Washington D.C. We have offices in about twenty odd countries around the world, and those countries contain about sixty. Two percent of all the world's people. So we're, you know, we're working on fam- primarily focused on family planning and, and disease prevention through through this to the work that I've described. Um, there's a lot more information on our website, which is you know www.dktinternational.org, O-R-G, and um, we're very happy to uh, to receive uh, donations, of course. Um, but uh, more than so, anything, if we donate, you know, where does the money go to? You know, that's always a con- you know, are you de- donate? What are you, who are you donating to, and where does the, where specifically does the money go to? Well, you can specify where you'd like it to go to. But one of the one of the nice things that I always like to talk about as the head of the organization is that about ninety eight percent of it goes to actual programs. We have a very small office. We're only six people here in Washington D.C. We're about three thousand people around the world. Um, we have almost zero, a zero fundraising budget. We don't spend very much on that. Um, all that information is transparent and it's available on our website, our financials, our audited financials, our tax filings, our results. It's all on our website, and um, so you can you can see that for yourself. But but it, it basically it goes to the programs. It goes straight into programmatic work. Well, that's refreshing. First of all, that it's transparent and we can see it and it, it's out there because I think that's one of the concerns today with a lot of organizations, you know, donating, especially monies that go to programs that are overseas. You don't really know who gets it and whether they get it at all or, you know, so you sort of cover your bases with that, which is really a good thing. Um, it's been great talking to you today. I mean, a lot of really good information um, and good work that you're doing. Um, anything in the future that we should know about that uh, that's uh, a little bit different than what we've been talking to on the uh, talk I've been talking to you about on the show this past half hour? 
Well, let's see. We're we are um, we're launching some new interesting products. There's one called uh, it's called Cyana Press, which is a very small needle, uh, just about uh, you know a quarter of an inch, maybe even less. Uh, needle which is attached to a pouch filled with a liquid which is provides a three-month injection. And one of the things that's exciting about this is that because the needle is so small and because the pouch is pre-filled, women can actually potentially inject themselves. So when you talk about going into rural populations, um, giving women, you know, showing them how to inject themselves and then sending them home with two or three of these uh, pouches, could really solve a problem a problem for communities that are far away from a health provider. So we're excited about that. Interesting. Lots of good work and lots of good work in the works. Uh, Chris, thanks so much for being on the show today. It was great talking well, to you. It was my pleasure, Catherine, yeah. and, uh, and uh, appreciate it. Yep. Keep up the good work. Uh, we're going to take a short break right now. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and uh, we'll be back in a minute. Don't go away. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts, we'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Do the adventures of Indiana Jones leave you curious about this exotic and unusual profession? If so, don't miss Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. You'll learn about forensics, ancient civilizations, and human origins. Listen to Dr. Schuldenrein and colleagues discuss their excavations and related archaeological topics, ranging from the unique to the sublime, and yes, even the mundane. Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, live Wednesday, 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Variety. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Um, this morning we were talking to Andrea Beeman. Since 1999, Andrea has been teaching individuals and health practitioners how to harness the body's own preventative and healing powers with nutritional practices. She was named one of the top 100 most influential 
health and fitness experts of 2012 by Greatest.com. After the death of her mother and witnessing the devastating effects of modern medical treatments for cancer, Beeman knew there had to be an alternative way to heal the body without destroying it in the process. She put the theory to the test when she was diagnosed with a debilitating thyroid disease. So welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Andrea. Oh, good morning, Catherine. Thanks for having me. You are an award-winning author, uh, chef, cooking show host, and you've written several books, and I guess we're going to just talk about all of that today. I mean, the first book, as you described it, the first book, The Whole Truth, How I Naturally Reclaimed My Health, and You Can Too, I guess was the, the start of all of this, or was it, in terms of health, nutrition, and taking care of our bodies? Yeah, it was a stepping stone. You know, it was my first foray into uh, the health and wellness world on my own personal level. Like, uh, like you had mentioned, I had seen my mom go through the treatments of radiation and chemotherapy, and I saw how damaging that was to the physical body. So when I was diagnosed with my condition, I had a large goiter, plus I had hyperthyroid, and I was suffering with anxiety and heart palpitations and poor immunity, and I was a mess. And, uh, and I, instead of taking the radioactive iodine, which was recommended to me, I changed my diet and my lifestyle, and that changed my health, and I was fascinated by that. When you say radioactive iodine, I'm interested because um, I have thyroid disease as well, so I had to get you on the show and have a history of that in my whole family. Um, and I know the first thing they want to do is medicate you, and you're talking about radioactive iodine. Was that, were you diagnosed with thyroid cancer, or was it just a... Or, or something else? No, I was diagnosed initially with hyperthyroid. So that means that my thyroid was producing too much hormone, plus I had a large goiter. Um, but then, uh, you know, I guess it was like six months after that, I was diagnosed with hypo and then Hashimoto. So what my thyroid was waffling back and forth, which is um, usually an indicator of an autoimmune thyroid condition. So, you know, they had recommended the radioactive iodine. This was 20 years ago because that's what they knew. You know, the thyroid's out of balance. Okay, let's just take out the thyroid, literally, like knock it out of commission, and then put you on a medication. Um, You know, now all the rage is thyroidectomy. You know, uh, I've had so many students and clients come to me and say, oh, I have Hashimoto's, or I have hyper, or I have a goiter, or I have these these nodules. And, And the doctors are recommending thyroidectomy, and I think that that's rash, and I think it's too quick, and it reminds me of what happens in the, in the 70s with tonsillectomies, you know, where you would go into the hospital for a damaged toe, and they'd say, hey, while you're here in the hospital, we could take your tonsils out. It was all the rage. So I think that thyroidectomies right now are, are where uh, tonsillectomies were in the 70s, where it's very popular. It's, let's just destroy that little gland. You don't need it. We could give you medication instead. And I think that's... Um, it's an unhealthy way to look at the body. Uh, two questions, Andrea. How, what, how, what are we talking about in terms of numbers, people who suffer, say, from thyroid disease? Well, uh, we have at least 30 million here in the U.S. alone, uh, and that number keeps growing and growing and growing, and there's lots of reasons why. Uh, tell us some of the reasons, because 30 million is a lot of people. I mean, I mean, that's a big percentage of the population, and it's growing. Is it because of what we eat or how we eat? Or it, obviously it has to do with our, how we practice or we don't practice um, healthy lifestyles. Yeah, it has a lot to do with how we eat, what we eat, how we eat it, how much stress, and what we're bombarded with on a daily basis in our food and in our air and our water, including all of the endocrine disruptors. 
So the thyroid lives on the endocrine system, right? It lives there with the pancreas and the hypothalamus and the pituitary and the pineal gland and your thyroid and your parathyroid and your gonads. So we have this entire system that is functioning, but we're uh, bombarded with a variety of endocrine disruptors, both in our food and in our environment. So some of those endocrine disruptors are phthalates. That's all the, the pl- soft plastic plasticizers that are in the, um, uh, in the plastic that everything's coated in. Um, you know, also we have BPA in the cans. When people are eating a lot of canned foods, they get BPA. These are endocrine disruptors, as well as we have atrazine in the, in the water, we have uh, rock. Can we go back to those liners? And they be, I recently went to a uh, program at the Mount at Sinai Hospital in, in uh, New York City, and some of what you were saying, they were obviously reiterating, or they were talking about. What about those? I mean, is the, does the EPA? Is there, are there any regulations? And if we're eating out of these cans and these plastic containers, and you I mean that's what all the stuff in the grocery store is in, right? Yes, so, that's w- correct. What, yeah. So how do we not do that? Well, the, the key is to buy as fresh as possible. So instead of buying food that comes out of brightly colored packages, purchase food that is brightly colored, right? So instead of Fruit Loops or Pop-Tarts or, you know, and I'm not just naming, you know, like it's everything in the, in the grocery store. Instead of like those brightly colored packaged and, and chemicalized foods, get real food, right? So cabbages, oranges, apples onions, greens, you know, like we have a wide variety of fresh foods that we could be using and eating, which will be so much better for us. But it's so, we're set up in this society, Catherine, that it's like nobody has time to cook, nobody has time to do anything except, except open up a package and then look around. We've got one out of three people with cancer. We've got thyroid disease skyrocketing. I mean, you know, we're, we're directly contributing to our poor health with the choices that we make. And somehow we don't seem to believe it. We don't. Yes. We still make excuses for, like you mentioned, a couple of the excuses. You left out one. It's too expensive to buy real food. That's <laughs> way too expensive. I can't afford it. Too much if I have a big family. So that's, that's another thing. And so we somehow can't wrap our brains around the fact that it's killing us. You know, yeah. we're talking, you're talking about the lining of these the cans and boxes and stuff. Maybe because it's over time. It's not something that happens right away. It's cumulative. It's something that we do every day. And so, yeah, this is okay. You know, it doesn't happen right away. That, That's correct. Yeah. Like you don't eat something out of a box and wake up the next day or out of a can and wake up the next day and boom, you have cancer. That's not the way that it works. It does accumulate. You know, like mutagenic cells accumulate. Uh, endocrine disruptors accumulate. So like let's take pesticides, for example. Right? We all know, and the FDA knows, and the EPA knows, that p- pesticides are endocrine disruptors. It's, it's not even a, a disputed fact anymore. But it's sprayed liberally on the food, and then we eat that food. Now, you know, we, we lose the connection because the, it's, it's doing its job. Pesticides are great at their job, and their job is to kill the bugs. So the difference between the human being and the bug is size. So what kills them immediately kills us, but it takes a longer time. It accumulates. So, you know, like we're so disconnected from our food supply that we don't even think. We're like, oh, my gosh, we we don't even blink an eye. We're like, okay, I'll spend $500 on on an iPhone or on the latest little gadget or on a new pair of shoes. But to spend 50 cents on an apple, we're like, oh, my God, that's, <laughs> that's, that's ludicrous. How could you expect me to spend 50 cents on an apple? <laughs> 
You know, I think that's that's a good point, and I think it's true. And I and I often think about that. You're right. Five hundred dollars for a new computers, iPhones, anything electronic, uh, is okay, but not an apple or an orange or, or any piece of fruit. Maybe. What do you think if you connect it? You know, pesticides, for instance, that you're feeding your children, you're feeding your babies pesticides. Yeah. You know, I, I mean, there has to be. So if there's a connection with that, would that be an effective way of saying to uh, to people that, hey, look what you're doing? You know, you're, you're, it's affecting your children. I mean, I, I don't know. But, yeah, um, well, actually, you know, a lot of women, when they get pregnant or when they have children, they actually start to look at food a little bit differently. But the truth is, until they take it on their own self and into their own body, it won't stay. It won't have long-lasting appeal. So how diligently they care for the child when it's a baby. Oh, the baby's growing and all this. It's like by the time the kid is a teenager, they're like, yeah, just grab the little snacks off the shelf. Go get your little Fruit Loops or whatever it is. You know, like the, the self-care and the love is gone. And that's because the parent may not be at that place themselves. So that's why it disappears. So yeah, I, I think that's true. I notice a lot of these new mothers that you're talking about. Well, you know, organic, organic, yep. organic clothes, organic food, organic everything, and they're really, you know, diligent about that. But you're right. Then the minute it's sort of as the kid gets into, you know, school and middle school and high school, that all dissolves, and they're drinking yeah. Coca-Cola and yep. eating junk food, and um, you know, and so. That's an issue. That's a problem. Yeah, it is an issue. And, Catherine, if, if you look at our society right now and our people, we're getting sicker at younger and younger ages. So where it used to be heart disease in your 60s and 70s, it's now in your 30s and your 40s. Where it used to be, uh, you, now we have so many women going through menopause in their 30s, you know, it's, it's where we're really out of balance. We're out of balance in so many ways. And I really encourage people to get to know the body that they're living in because they're going to be in and out of this life before they know it. So why make it a life of suffering? Why make it a life of pain, like on purpose? Like, you know, really take it like, I remember there was a great quote by the Buddha. The Buddha said, the Buddha said um, it's a duty to take care of your body. And it really is because the body is housing your spirit or your energy to make it through this lifetime. So if you're polluting it, you're going to want to just sit on the couch. You're not going to want to go out and enjoy life. You're going to be headaches, cancer, disease. You know, that you, things are going to happen in this lifetime. Why contribute to that? Why yeah. even make it a, you know, like, why increase your chances of, <laughs> of disease? Why increase that? Take the best care that you can of yourself so that your journey here on this planet in the body that you have lasts as long as it will last and you're comfortable as opposed to uncomfortable and suffering. Mm -hmm. That's very well said, and we have to take responsibility for our bodies. I just hear the word responsibility. Okay, yeah. tell us how to do it, because you know, we, I'm listening to it. How much attention do I have to pay? Is it going to take too much time? Is the process itself so overwhelming that I feel like, oh, I can't do it? You know, it's just too much. I, I just, I'm going to take the easy way out and take my chances, and <laughs> hopefully I won't get cancer. Right, I know, hopefully, right? Because, yeah. you know, take a look around. How many people are in the radio room right now or in the, you know, how many people are in your room right now with you? Like if you look at one out of three people. Uh -huh. So this is, this is a scary statistic, right? So for me, this is what I teach my students is that they have to start to get, it, get into the space of I love and care for myself 
Because when you love and care for something, like that little baby, right? When the baby comes out, they're like, oh, I'm going to do everything for the little baby. When you love and care for something, you want to do everything for it. So we have to take that moment, and not in a narcissistic way, but say, oh, my gosh, I love me. I'm important. I deserve my time and attention. I deserve a great quality meal instead of something that was shoved into a box by a um, uh, mechanical process, you know, and then I pour it into the, the cereal bowl and boom, I'm done and out the door. You know, we, I think that we've lost meals, we've lost preparation, we've lost um, so much, and we've lost our health in the process of get out there, get to work, make the money, and keep the economy going. And, you know, it's, it's like, um, it's, it's almost like we're, we either have to make money or we can take care of ourselves, but you can't combine the two. And I think that we need to stop and say, okay, enough is enough. Enough is enough. I'm not going to be working until I'm in the grave and not taking care of myself. We've got to set, set the boundaries and put our foot down and say, I'm going to take my lunch hour. I used to work a full-time job, corporate America, and when I was sick, I made the connection. I was like, I really don't want to go out the way my mom went out with the radiation and the chemotherapy. I said, okay, I've got to take care of myself. I was 28 years old. And I said, I made my breakfast in the morning before I left for work. I brought my lunch with me. I I would make dinner at night. I would bring that the next day with me for lunch. And every single day at lunchtime, I would take a walk. I would leave my computer. I would leave my desk. And I would take a walk. Because the truth is, my boss isn't going to be visiting me in the hospital right? 20 years or 30 years from now. That's not going to They'll send flowers. We're sorry you're sick, you know, so, uh, you know, or a card, you know. Yeah, I mean, that's like a that. good example. Unfortunately, though, you had to go, what, were you were 28 years old? I mean, go through that kind of a crisis. Your mother yeah. dying of cancer, chemotherapy, radiation. I can't tell you how many people, friends, family, yep. I've been through uh, with that. And one thing that strikes me is then you do have to spend a lot of time in horrific kinds of treatments and going to the hot, you know, all of that. I mean, like spend the time, we keep saying the same thing over, but I think you have to do that. Like spend time before that happens. It's a, you know, it will be less time consuming than trying to save your life through, you know, once you've been diagnosed, for instance. And it's not just cancer. It's heart disease. It's a whole Fluid yes. diseases, isn't it? Yeah. Yes, heart disease, cancer, diabetes, thyroid disease. I mean, we are just riddled. Arthritis, we're just riddled with all of these diseases, which is mostly a modern phenomenon. I mean, cancer has been around for a long time, but if you look at um, the uh, amount of people that were dug up and had cancer as opposed to who's not getting, uh, you know, we're going to the grave and we're just riddled with disease. And uh, it's just not healthy. We're not, look at our bones. Our bones are falling apart as well because we're not getting sunshine. We're not getting exercise. We're sitting in front of desks all day long. It's, we're really creating like a very sick society, which is great for the industry that is, you know, okay, get you in the hospital, put you in the chop shop. Let's, let's get you on this and that medication. You know, it's great for that industry, but it's not so great for your experience here on the planet unless that's what you want to do. Like, there's no judgment here. If, if you're the kind of person that just is okay with that whole scene, you know, go okay with spending most of your time in the hospital, okay getting another organ taken out, you know, if that's your, if that's your choice, then that's your choice. For me, I'm choosing something different. For me, I, I'd like a, a, a healthier life. 
I don't want to spend so much time in the hospital. I want to give my body a fighting chance because I may wind up in the hospital like somebody else with some disease, but at least I'm going to give myself a good fighting chance. So we're talking about quality of life because one of the excuses you hear from people, oh, but we're living longer, we're living to be 85, 90 years old. Yeah, we are, but what about the quality of life as we're living to be that age? We live, as, as you described it, I think, earlier, as sick people, as, you know, taking yep. pills and medications and treatments and, and, you know, we're overweight and you can go on and on. But so quality of life is what's important. I agree, Catherine. And yeah. if, you op- if you go to an old person's house and you open up their cabinet, they're on 15 or 20 medications and not functioning, not bright-eyed, not peppy. Um, they, they've lost that joy de vivre, that love for life. So, you know, like... Um, it's, it's rare these days that I find someone in their 80s that still has a twinkle or a sparkle in their eyes. It's the rare person. Mostly, they're on a lot of medications, they're suffering, they're sick, they're either in the nursing home, they can't function. You know, it's, 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 like you said, what's the quality of the life? What is the quality? So we have to look at maybe, you know, the blue zones. Let's look at some of the other environments where people are living into the 80s and 90s and hundreds and they're still vibrant and healthy and gardening and taking care of things and not on 27 different medications. Yeah, that's good. Uh, that's, a, that's a good point. And the blue zone versus, what would you call it, the gray zone where we're you know, <laughs> sitting on the couch miserable, making everybody else miserable as well. Yes, uh, yes. What about, because or- we haven't spoke specifically about this, uh, organic foods. Should we I always think- try to go organic if, if we can? Yeah, if you can. And also, you said earlier that people say that it's too expensive. It's actually less expensive once you know what to do. So, for example, I'm part of a CSA. That's a community-supported agriculture. And I've been a part of this CSA for 15 years. I know the farmer. I know how she grows her food. I know how our family treats the, you know, everything that they grow. And I pay her and her family $525 for six months' worth of produce. It comes out to $21 a week. $21 a week, you know, and then, of course, I'll get my eggs and my meats and anything else that I'm eating at the farmer's market because I know that I also know those farmers as well. So when people say to me it's too expensive to eat healthy, it's just that they don't know, they're not savvy enough to navigate how to get the healthiest food in the most financially responsible ways. So where else can you get $21 per week and get uh, two bags of produce? You can't. You walk into Whole Foods and you're spending $200 for a bag of produce. You know, so I would suggest people join a CSA and you could find one. You can go to localharvest.org, put in your zip code and all the CSAs that are in your area, that means community-supported agriculture, that are in, they'll pop up and join one. It'll be the best money you've ever spent. Andrea, I've heard that it, one should not keep buying the same food from the same farm, for instance, because like if one farm, uh, say, at a farmer's market or wherever, like has a certain problem or with their product, that if you keep eating the same food over and over and not varying it, it's not good for you because you'll constantly be exposed to whatever may or be, uh, you know, uh, wrong with their particular food. Uh, yeah, know, I, definitely yeah. get to know the farmers. What are they using? Like my farmer, uh, my CSA, they don't use any pesticides. They hand weed their entire farm. And also, you're exactly right that you need to change food. So I'll give you an example of why a CSA or why getting to go to your farmer's market actually works better than getting the same food all the time in the grocery store. 
we choose, like, we have all of these seasons, right? We have four seasons, five seasons, three seasons. It depends on where you live in the world. And in each season, different food grows. And in each season, that particular food is the perfect food for that, for your body in that season. So I'll give an example. Watermelon, perfect food in the summertime. It's hot, right? Watermelon is very cooling. It's very satisfying. It's rich in glucose and carbohydrates that gives you the energy to need to keep moving. And then that same watermelon you could get in February in the northeastern United States or in Canada or in Siberia. You could still get watermelon. So that same watermelon that's very healthy for you in the summertime can be very unhealthy for you if eaten in a cold environment. Because one thing that my body does not want if I'm in Canada and I have nine feet of snow outside my door, it does not want to be cooled down. <laughs> my body doesn't want to have watermelon. It actually wants stew, right? It wants stew. It wants potatoes. So when we're eating from the local store, we have a tendency to, oh, yeah, I'll get the broccoli and I'll get the potatoes or I'll get this and I'll get... And we have two or three things. But when you are in the circuit, like um, in the farmer's market circuit or you're in, uh, in a CSA, you notice that in June you get a certain amount of food, a certain type of food, and in July the food changes, and in August the food changes again, and then in September now the squashes are coming in and all the root vegetables, right? So you have this series where the food is constantly being changed, and that's very smart, and it's very healthy. Because if you eat the same thing over and over and over and over again, it's not going to be healthy for your body on many levels. You can create digestive distress, allergies. Um, like I said, you could have a cooling food inside your body when your body does not want to be cooled, uh, and that would cause sickness and disease in the long term, you know, like candida and uh, a damp condition, which is called in Chinese medicine damp stagnation. If you're eating too many cold, wet foods and your body is cold already, um, So, you know, there's lots of stuff to look at when it comes to healing the body or or health and vibrancy. I think that seasonal food is very important. I think uh, perhaps two generations ago, that's what they did. They only ate seasonal foods until refrigeration became, yeah. And so, you know, modern refrigeration sort of changed, not sort of, it did change that, and not in a good way as you're describing it. So seasonal foods, very important. Um, yeah, and, and don't get me wrong, I think refrigerators are great. <laughs> yeah. Don't throw away your, don't get rid of your refrigerator. That's not what you're saying. You know? Right. Stock it with seasonal food. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I'm not sure that's something that's on the top of everybody's list. You don't hear right. that too often. I mean, you know, for whatever reason, but that is important. When you talk about these community-supported agriculture, uh, what did you say, CS? Yeah. yeah. Community-supported agriculture, it's a CSA. And they're all over the United States? They're all over the world. They're all over. But yeah, the one for the United States, go to localharvest.org. Um, I think it's a nonprofit. And it'll tell you all of the farms and farmers and participating CSAs. In your, just put in your zip code. And then go and, and meet the farmer. Hey, how are you growing? Are you using pesticides? You're not using pesticides. How are you growing this? Um, you know, it's, it's, it's almost like a little, bit of, um, it's a little bit of work. But I think it's work that's worth it. Yep. 
And once you get into it, I think, you know, you kind of have to get into the flow of doing that, and then it gets interesting. You're sort of like a detective. Like, and yes. then once you get the information, <laughs> it's hard to go back and start eating toxic things when you really know, you know, the more you do it, it's like, wow, I don't think I can go back and eat that stuff because I know it's not good for me. We didn't get into, and we only have a couple minutes left, well, we only have a minute left, so we can't, but I was going to ask you about antibiotics in the, in the food, but that's oh, another God. show. Yes. Uh, <laughs> it's been great having you on the show today. Really, lots of good information. Uh, give us your website that we can go to. Uh, um, it's www.andreabeeman.com. Great. And I've got lots of books and DVDs and blogs and information and where you can get a CSA and all that stuff. And lots Ter- of recipes. Terrific. Recipes, books. Andrea's got a slew of books. We didn't even get to that today, but <laughs> great talking to you. Thank you so much. Thanks for um, having me. Yep. Uh, we're going to say goodbye. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you have been listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Have a great week. We'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network its staff and management.